She received absolution and died at peace with God. I will try to write again when I have more command of myself. I'm like a sleepwalker at the moment. This is Pints with Jack, Season 7, Episode 6, Troubling News. Letters to an American Lady, Part 4. Dear Pints with Jack listeners, thank you for downloading this episode of Pints with Jack, the podcast where we discuss the work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading some of Lewis's letters, which have been brought together in several different collections. In season seven, we'll read his correspondence with Mary Willis Shelburne, found in the Letters to American Lady, as well as his letters to children and his exchange of Latin letters with St. Giovanni Calabria. We're in our penultimate episode of Letters to an American Lady, and today we're going to be looking at the letters of 1959 and 1960. In these letters, we'll be heading into some difficult times for both Jack and Mary. The major event during this period being the death of Jack's wife, Joy. Mm. All blessings, Andrew, David, and Matt. Mm. Well, happy Christmas. Well, nearly Christmas. <laughs> this will be going out around Christmas Day. Mm. Oh, wonderful. Well, yeah, happy Christmas. And from this day, the next 24 hours, probably 36, is going to be one of the more fun 36 our Christmas stretches for me. I'm in Washington, D.C. with Mary Margaret, and we have this whole kind of week planned out. And today is um, more her and I night, Christmas cocktails, a fun dinner, and then Hondo's Messiah. And we've been listening to, I've listened to three podcasts, so now I understand a little bit of the history of, oh, I think they all say yeah. Handles, actually, not Hondo's. Handle. Handles, yeah. <laughs> that would be good. And then tomorrow, we're going to go ice skating, a holiday pop-up Christmas bar that looks so cool, um, nice. doing brunch, and then a dinner and walk through like this Georgetown light glow district. Mm. Um, so it's going to be a really fun 36-hour stretch. And um, we both externally had like some some rougher stuff and just like work and stuff that popped up. So this is like a really fun reprieve here on a Friday going into Saturday. I'm like very excited. Yeah. <laughs> so we're recording on a Friday in the middle of, of December, but Matt's talking about his plans for Christmas Day. So because yes. me and chronologies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm doing well, working on some grad stuff, getting ready for Christmas. Um, by Christmas Day, I will be down in Sarasota, having done a number of services at uh, at Church of the Messiah. So uh, just grateful. I've also been doing a number of, and we'll talk about this in the common room, um, and a number of Lewis-related events. So tomorrow we're in Palatka near St. Augustine, um, and we won't be able to see Henny Nardone um uh she'll she'll be in orlando when i'm in her neck of the woods but um and then saturday we're in winter park doing lewis things and yeah but um since our last time i've got my new flex here's the time magazine um (laughs) and that is from february 6th 1956 and it's the one we referred to last time and it's the first appearance of this photograph as far as i can tell and it's the review of surprise by joy Mm-hmm. What was interesting to me is that the photograph was taken by a pretty well-known British photographer called Barrington Brown, A. Barrington Brown. Um, but in uh, all the other pictures, it says photograph by John S. Murray. And so uh, now there's another chronology and event and something that I need to track down as if I didn't have enough. <laughs> Wonderful. Well... Life in the Bates household is fun. My mum is still here. Uh, Alexandra is bonding with her now nicely, very nicely. She got to read him a very long book about horses this morning, which she really enjoyed. 
Uh, and uh, I've also, the episodes from Fantastical Truth just went out. I went on to talk about Tolkien and Lewis and Christmas. And also the first of, I think, three parts from the CSOS podcast, also about Christmas, have just been released at this time. So hopefully by the time this episode comes out, the last one will have been released. And I'll probably then just stitch them all together and drop that also on the feed where you can hear more of Lewis's uh, angry old band thoughts about Xmas. <laughs> I'm going to have to finally listen to this other C.S. Lewis podcast now, David, now that they brought such a wonderful person on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I know you're not going to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> the talk about Xmas begins um, begins right around now, or begins mm. in our letters for today. Yeah. So what's everyone drinking? Coffee. Coffee. Yeah, I'm going with some mint tea. It's... Uh, I, if uh, listeners will recall, we are recording uh, quite a few episodes this season early in the morning, so we we can't do the the, the day drinking that we normally do. <laughs> David, I love I love to seeing every time it says keep short. David <laughs> internalized some of the feedback from some of our recent surveys, and it's like chit chat, toast, jump into the meat of the, the subject. And so I just love how we're all like coffee, coffee. <laughs> I'm I'm having an appropriately colored mug for Christmas. My uh, uh, there are some people who I know who are very Advent advocative, and so uh, this should be a blue mug when I'm recording it. But it's a red mug for Christmas. So Merry Christmas, everybody! Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas, Matt. Can you offer us a toast? I would love to, especially because of the name of this individual, uh, Matt Nash, Matt Nash, Matthew Nash, Matt Nash. Uh, who just upgraded to our gold level Patreon supporter, which by the way, you guys, if you, if you feel called in this new year to support us, our, our supporters have been such a gift throughout the years. And it's the reason we're able to keep this such a high quality. Well, that plus David's ruthless commitment to excellence, uh, is the reason we're able to keep this such high quality on a really tight budget in a really wonderful sense. Uh, and so we really thank you for all of our supporters. And, um, if anyone feels called to feel free to go to Patreon, we would absolutely welcome it. Now back to Matt. Sorry, Matt. We just want to say and raise a glass here uh, as we enter this Advent season, uh, this holiday season, Matt. First of all, we are just so grateful for you. And we just pray that the the Lord uh, who comes into this creation, becomes incarnate, becomes incarnate within you in theosis and divinization and deification just plays out every single day and that you just experience the divinity of Christ more and more uh, and radiate his glory. Uh, and we do this in your name. I don't know. I just turned this into prayer, but amen. <laughs> amen. Cheers. Amen. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, I was like, I can't just pull this back now. We got to go to the full amen. <laughs> hey, hey, Committed well, now. We're, we're never going to criticize you for praying. It was actually very sweet this morning. Uh, Alexander beat me to our morning prayers. He said, Daddy, I pray for you. And so we went to our icon wall and, and he led us. Oh, <laughs> sweet. I love that. Oh, man. Don't make me cry, David. Oh, my goodness. If I, if I told you all of the cute things he did, you'd be in floods of tears. You should uh, start a podcast called Floods of Tears. The cute things of... <laughs> well, love you know, is tears. Some obscure reference for people that know. Okay, yes. let's get on no to poetry. the letters from 1959. Yes. Our first letter comes at the end of January. Jack and Mary have been discussing various historical matters, such as the positive reception of African-American troops in England during World War II, and also the American diplomat Grant Ulysses Smith, who I actually had to look up because I had no idea who that was. 
Lewis comments on how historians so often focus on things unimportant to those who are alive at the time. Uh, he says, does not what we call history, in fact, leave out nearly the whole of real life? Mm. And I'm sure we'll be talking about this more when I interview Dr. Alan Snyder about his new book on Lewis's view of history, uh, many times and many places. And part of it is that, especially with you know the documentary past, we have sometimes so few documents, and we don't know what ordinary life is. You know, even Auden wrote a poem called Musée des Beaux Arts, uh, talking about the fall of Icarus, and um, he says that for so many people, even in that scene, it was not an important failure, and so the things that hit the headlines. Um, are not necessarily the things that hit our daily lives. And that might be, uh, there may be some wisdom in that, um, especially with the 24-hour news cycle and the constant stream in our social media and our apps and all the rest, um, to pick and choose what news we allow into us and certainly pick and choose the news that we allow to affect us because there's nothing that we can do about so much that we see. And so mm -hmm. let's be let's be wise about um, the balance of the situation of the international and the things that we cannot change and the lives of the people who are right there around us, people we work with, people we have families with. Um, it's Christmas. And so holidays are sometimes quite ambivalent for people. And we'll say more about that in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And that is a little soapbox topic of mine I love to go back to just to remind people when they're fuming about what uh, officials in the church, politicians, celebrities are doing. It's like, if you cannot affect this one iota, how much time should you really be giving it in your head? Uh, rather, as St. Mother Teresa said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. You know, go to your sphere of influence and do that well for the glory of God. Mm. Uh, the recovery community has an exercise where you sit down with a piece of paper and on one side you make a list of things that you have no power over. And on the other side, the things that you actually have power over. Mm -hmm. And um, for, for believers, the left-hand side, the things that we have no power are excellent things for our prayers and for letting go. And the things mm -hmm. that we um, have power over are excellent things for our, our effort and our energy and our active love. I'll be sure to link to the serenity prayer in the show notes because that perfectly yes. embodies that. Absolutely. But before we leave this first letter, there's a lovely description of the weather at the end. I'm not sure if it's just because I'm English mm. and this spoke to me. Uh, Lewis writes, we are having beautiful winter weather at present. Bright, pale sunshine, paler than you ever see. Joy calls it Arctic light. Still air and just that sprinkling of hoarfrost, which makes everything sparkle like sugar. Mm. I can picture this from my Oxford time. I mean, there yeah. were some days where it was just the lightest dusting. It was so beautiful. Yeah. It was vividly, vibrantly white. Um, yeah. It was so cool. I actually have some very fond memories of that. Uh, and then Heathrow shuts down because you all can't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, yeah. I can picture this from the kilns. They had, um, I think, nine different fireplaces. And so the rooms were cold unless you put on a fire. And I imagine that the, the house was colder. Um, than most of ours with central heating and air. That sense of winter winter pervading. I love that. Mm. Well, after that first letter, there's a bit of a gap in their correspondence. And when Lewis sends one in May, he says that he was unaware that he owed Mary a letter. This happens a couple of times. And this is May after not um, 
uh, not writing since January. So, mm -hmm. and 5960, they have written a number of books. Um, they're having a happy year with mostly health, uh, mostly in 59. And 60 is the year when Joy dies um, in April. And so that's kind of what's going on in their lives. Mm. But he tells her not to worry if he makes this mistake mm -hmm. again of, of missing a letter, not writing to her for a little bit. He also says something amazing for anyone that's seen the volumes of Jack's letters. He writes, Manlike, I am not naturally a correspondent at all. The daily letter writing I have to do is very laborious to me. Well, I'm not sure about the gendered uh, characteristic, but he certainly did a whole lot of things that he didn't like to do. And, um, and it's, it's a blessing to, to all of us that, that he did so. All I'll say in terms of the question of gender uh, on letter writing I'm going to ask Matt one question. Matt, how many letters did you write prior to writing letters to Mary and Margaret this past year? <laughs> this past year, zero. I rest my case. Anyway, I've tried uh, before. So <laughs> with, I've tried with friends before. I've probably written five or ten letters to just guy friends in the past, um, just catching up. It was just kind of fun. I had this one buddy from high school that we we would he is married with some kids, and so we talk about faith and theology, and I just kind of write. A little bit, but yes, nothing has ever stuck before in my life. <laughs> well, and even non-work emails, um, I don't, I don't send a ton of them. <laughs> Neither do I. Well, there's also some cat talk in this May letter, and we're going to see quite a lot of that in in the remaining pages of this book. Uh, here, Lewis describes their Siamese cat, who apparently enjoys being picked up by her tail. <laughs> so weird. Yes, and this is not their orange cat, Tom, um, who we've talked about here before. Mm, yes, Tom will make a, an appearance again. Uh, at least he's referenced again soon. Um, yes. But this episode is called Troubling News, and in this letter we have our first sad announcement. We're told that Reverend Peter Bide's wife has cancer. And Peter Bide was the man who laid hands on Joy, which seemingly brought about her remission. He laid hands on her, he prayed for her, and then she went into remission. Well, his wife is now sick with cancer. And although I'm sure it's not to the exclusion of his wife, Lewis interestingly asked Mrs. Shelburne to pray for him. Hmm. And I, I wonder if that's because Lewis himself has been the support for someone who has been sick, and he knows that that person as well needs prayers and not just the one who's mm -hmm. bearing the illness. Well, and I love that their relationship um, extends so far that they can, he can bid each other's prayers. So Peter Bide, by the way, was also the man who married Joy and Jack mm -hmm. at the bedside in the religious ceremony, and he's a former student. And so, A couple of weeks later, Lewis writes again, and there's more sad news. A longtime friend of Mary's has died, and Jack sympathizes because one of his own friends has also recently died. Did warn listeners that this episode was going to be a bit of a downer. Anyway, Lewis writes, just like you, we keep on hearing jokes for which she would have been exactly the right recipient. And then he says, there is no way out of it. Either one must die fairly young or else outlive many friends. Um, I wonder if this is Lizzie Endicott. I doubt it. Yeah, I did have a little poke around to see if I could work out who it was, but I don't know. It's someone that both Jack and Warney knew, so I assumed it was probably someone back in Ireland. Yeah, and then the fact that um, that he talks about jokes in Surprised by Joy, not not many years earlier, he talked about there were jokes that you could tell in the, in the nursery that you couldn't tell in, in the drawing room. So mm. we'll see if Reggie answers quickly, but we can carry on. Okay, all right. We'll we'll, we'll keep keep listeners posted with live updates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
In the following month's letter, Mary's troubles abound, uh, but she's also curiously at peace. What do you think of this section, Matt? Here he talks about how he, he had one of the worst circumstances of his life, obviously, last year as she's dying and he's got this incredible pain of osteoporosis. Yet in reality, he said, we were far from unhappy. May the peace of God continue to enfold you. Remember how he mentions before that sometimes you don't pray for God to like an almost like absolute saint-like prayer would not be to pray that God removes negative circumstances and provides you positive ones, but rather the virtue to handle both. And I thought there's so much wisdom in that. I don't remember what that's from. I just remember finding it so beautiful because it also alluded to you also need virtue to handle good circumstances because that's a easy way to fall <laughs> away from the Lord. Here is something similar. Like you can have really painful external circumstances, but he can provide you peace and, com- and comfort, but not actually remove the negative external circumstances. And then, you know, he goes a little bit further in this letter and he uh, delivers some of the first really direct reflections in this book on death. And so at least this point, I'll just read as it is. What a state we have got into when we can't say, I'll be happy when God calls me. Without being afraid, one will be thought morbid. After all, St. Paul said just the same. If we really believe what we say we believe, if we really think that home is elsewhere and that this life, this life is a wandering to find home, why should we not look forward to the arrival? There are only three things we can do about death, to desire Mm -hmm. it, to fear it, or to ignore it. Ooh, that's good. The third alternative, which is the one the modern world calls healthy, meaning ignore it, is surely the most uneasy and precarious of them all. Mm, that's just so good. I mean, to desire it. This reminds me, obviously, of Out of the Silent Planet. I think there's going to be another letter we're going to come across maybe in this episode, maybe the next one, where there's just a wisdom of death. And, he, and really that last episode next week, you're going to get a lot of that. There's just such beauty in this. Mm. Absolutely. I I underline that too. Three things that we can do about death, to desire it, to fear it, or to ignore it. And so, um, yeah, well, ignoring it doesn't seem all that wise. Um, I don't know. It's like liar, lunatic, Lord. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure, but it's it's, it's a good syllogism. By the way, I found the woman who died. Thank you very much. Um, It was their Irish friend, Janie McNeil. Um, and there's a biography and collected letters. So, mm. wonderful. Yeah. Apropos of nothing. What do you think about this view of death, David? Uh, well, I'm just shocked that you didn't quote till we have faces, uh, because this idea of looking forward and uh, it, its comparison to the current state sounds like uh, Psyche and Orwell when Psyche's mm-hmm. talking about going to the mountain and Orwell's pitching a fit because, oh, did I really make you so unhappy? Hmm. I'm a I'm an, a statistical and evidence-based researcher, and so listeners, I will uh, submit to you as part of my ongoing claim that this season, who has brought up till we have faces more than I have? <laughs> touche. Let's touché. just have a hearty swig. Okay. All right. Cheers. <sighs> mm. Well, the following month, Lewis is in County Down, Ireland, and he's going to be returning in a few days. And he speaks some more about death, but also about dentistry. Anyone who's read Lewis knows the <laughs> solid connection between these two subjects. And in this letter, he connects the two in preparation for something he's going to say in Letters to Malcolm. It's very similar. But here's what he writes to Mary. 
I came away wondering whether we dare hope that the moment of death may be very like that delicious moment when one realizes the tooth is really out and the voice says, rinse your mouth with this. This, of Mm. course, will be purgatory. And in letters mm-hmm. to Malcolm, he goes on to say that it, it, it might it might burn more than we can ever imagine, but it will not be, uh, what does he say, something like disgusting or unhallowed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he says it will not be those things, disgusting or unhallowed. Yeah. And while, you know, the, the Protestants in our midst may not go um, for the idea of purgatory, we certainly, um, even the best, most evangelical um, uh, approach to the scripture acknowledges that after death will come the judgment and we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And because a thousand days is like a year and a, you know, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, I wonder if maybe all of our purgatory will vanish in a minute. Um, at the judgment seat of Christ. I think that there's a place for uh, all brands of Christians to kind of stand at least close to that moment. And and Lewis often brings up the fact that purgatory serves as kind of a way for us to change out of our mortal clothes mm-hmm. and put on our heavenly attire. And God of his courtesy would allow us to, you know, to take a shower before we're presented <laughs> to the company. Um, so there's something of that God's final cleansing of us to make us ready for heaven. And of Mm. course, all of his cleansing is his work anyway. And so there is a place for even the most ardent Protestant to stand, you know, at least close to to Lewis's uh, view of purgatory. And purgatory is also seen not only as cleansing, but also healing. And uh, you know, it is it is pulling out the, the the infected teeth that we have, the shedding off of those sins and inclinations to sins. Um, and that's rather appropriate because in that letter, Lewis also talks about the NHS, the National Healthcare System of England, um, which is free. And uh, it, it, this is probably the closest I think Lewis ever gets to anything political. I don't know if it's really political, but um, the the question of uh, socialized medicine is often brought up here in the in the US. Uh, but mm-hmm. um, here, Lewis says that. Um, while free healthcare means that doctors are pestered by people who have nothing wrong with them, he says that it's better than leaving people to sink or swim on their own resources. Mm. And that's certainly one point of view that you um, that you that you hear about. Um, and some friends of mine have had the benefit of the National Health Service while in England. American friends who got sick during some of our trips. So, yes, pros and cons. And especially as we're less than a year away from a presidential election, we won't be continuing. We will continue not to weigh into political <laughs> questions. I'll see if I can dig out the clip. I think it's from Thirty Rock, where Jack and his wife they're in Canada and. So they get free healthcare, and they refuse to do it, and they insist on paying. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love the next paragraph, um, and it begins a few letters that talk about forgiveness. And I actually, in the second one, I actually have an argument with Jack, and I think that he's wrong. Um, so we should run out a banner headline for that. Um, but uh, you don't mean that feeling that we are not worthy to be forgiven. Because, of course, we aren't. Forgiveness is by its nature for the unworthy. Um, So he begins to deal with the dynamics of forgiveness in here. And then he also mentions Joy's biro. And I have in my hands right now a biro that is exactly like the one that um, that Lewis had. He means a ballpoint pen. And he says uh, it's an odious or hateful thing. So (laughs) he didn't like ballpoint pens, evidently. Which is hilarious considering he used a dip pen. 
I'm sorry, Jack. <laughs> I, I'm going to take I'm going to take umbrage with that statement. This uh, biro is significantly uh, more convenient. By the way, the Latin root of umbrage means shade. So David's throwing shade at C.S. Lewis about his writing implements. <laughs> I, if he can get his best book wrong, he can also get writing implements wrong. Ooh. <laughs> and once again, I will appeal to evidence. <laughs> uh, and I'm holding up to the camera two of the kinds of pens that Jack used. So, because, you know, I'm dorky that way. Onward we go. Yes. yes. In August, Lewis quotes The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Matt, you had thoughts. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, first, just high level, I loved it. I obviously this is not a Lewis quote, but then I loved what he did with it. And so the quote is bear your cross for if you try to get rid of it, you'll probably find another and worse one. But what Lewis mm. does is he takes his concept and flips it into something as he's so good at doing into not saying that that's a wrong concept. It's so right, but there's also a beautiful aspect to it. Almost like the whole virtue vices that can be two sides of the same coin, depending on how you apply yourself. And so here he says, but there is a brighter side to the same principle. When we lose one blessing, another is often more unexpectedly given in its place. Mm -hmm. I mean, ugh, he's just got a gift for that. Yeah. <laughs> also in this letter, he, uh, he marks something about getting old. And I don't know that I've necessarily experienced it yet, but I've got it to look forward to. I'm not much younger than he was when he wrote this. He was uh, 60 when he wrote this letter. Um, I get no more tired now than I did when I was younger, but I take much longer to get untired afterwards. So, mm. hmm. By the way, listeners, for no extra charge, um, in the previous letter, he said, "I, not that I know what a pediatrician is any more than a boojum. A boojum is a fictional a animal in Lewis Carroll's Taming of the Snark. <laughs> no extra charge for that. No extra charge for that. <laughs> it's all part of the package here on the- uh, Perhaps a close relative to a Bandersnatch. <laughs> yes. That was great. The drinks and dinner cruise that is Pints with Jack. <laughs> well, at the end of the month, Lewis writes again, things with Mary still seem pretty bad, and she has to move once again. Uh, in the next letter, he commiserates with her um, and congratulates her on selling an article. But by October, the move is over. And Jack explains that the cancer has been found in Joy's bones again. He writes, mm. Apparently the wonderful recovery Joy made in 1957 was only a reprieve, not a pardon. Mm. Joy's courage is wonderful, and she gives me more support than I can give her. The dreadful thing, mm. as you know, is the waking each morning, the moment at which it all flows back on one. Yeah, we are in retreat, he says. The tide has turned. And so you definitely hear that that phrase, by the way, the moment at which it all flows back on one. It looks backwards to um, to mere Christianity, where he says the real uh, problem of the Christian life comes the very moment that you awake and all your desires and fears for the day rush at you like wild animals and we must push them back. But it also looks very much forward to some phrasing in A Grief Observed, where he talks about um, waking up each morning and having just this blessed moment before he realizes again that his wife has died and that grief overwhelms him. So very sad. Yeah. I, I've just, I've loved in these letters, outside of the theme of offering up, which is just what stuck out to me so much, the bit of the emotional side we get to see of Lewis. Like if I think back to the the one where he wrote that 
became, almost became or be, might become, I think he said might become both a, a widower mm-hmm. and a married man or something. Mm-hmm. A husband and a widow. Yes. I'm about to be a bridegroom and a widower in the same breath. You can just hear the, read and sense and feel the depth of which he's writing that. Like mm-hmm. he really does have a, just such an emotional interior life. Um, mm-hmm. Even if he portrays strength constantly. I love it. And that's part of what what made this book so um so helpful to me when I first read it and and so inspiring. It was a Lewis that I had never known. Incidentally, I uh, I saw a note um I was going to say one more thing about winter when we talked about the the wintry mornings. Um he just made a comment about how beastly hot it is. Lewis almost never complains about the winter and almost never compliments the heat of the summer. So we know what kind of weather he seemed to like. <laughs> yeah. On the Lawhaven uh, podcast, I was asked whether or not it was true that Lewis and Tolkien dressed up as polar bears. And I said, I found proof that Tolkien did it, but I'm not sure I've got any hard evidence that Lewis did. Uh, but mm. given his preference for cold weather, it's entirely possible. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and given the, given their uh, their tendency to have a few drinks together, I wouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> Okay, so there's one more letter in 1959, just before Christmas. It seems that Mary's complaining once again about Lewis owing her a letter. And this this response is wonderful. He says, your letter finds me with as clear a conscience about correspondence as a not very methodical nor leisured man ever has. And he asks that if they're both alive next year to agree not to write during the busy Christmas season. (laughs) And he ends with the usual snipe about the Xmas racket. He writes, let us hope that both of us will have been given grace amidst all this ghastly commercial racket of Xmas. To enter into the Feast of the Nativity, the racket has nearly smothered it. And for more about this, please check out my appearances on the Lawhaven podcast and the C.S. Lewis podcast, where I talk at length about what Christmas means to C.S. Lewis. And just to be clear, Lawhaven, Uh, L-O-R-E. Haven, mm-hmm. just in case yes. it's hard to understand. <laughs> yes. Kristen and I are doing two Christmas events at the recording of this. We're doing two Christmas events tomorrow and the next day. Having found this, I think we're going to throw this in. Um, and so encourage people to to be mindful of, um, of the quiet baby breaking in, catching us all off our guard, mm. which is a line from a, an, an Advent poem that I rewrite every year. Well, that was 1959, so now we're on to 1960. And a new letter appears in mid-February. Mary has been sick with the Asian flu, as it was known. And he thanks Mary for a poem that she had sent him. And I think we've mentioned her poetry before. Mary was a keen poet. And at the end of this episode, I'm actually going to be reading one of Mary's poems that I found while Andrew and I were visiting the Wade Center. (laughs) Well, no. While Lazo Major and you were visiting the Wade Center and I got and tagged along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the update from the Lewis household in this letter is that while Jack is having difficulty sleeping, Joy has been doing surprisingly well. And it seems that they're going to be able to make their trip to Greece, which they had planned before mm-hmm. she came out of remission. And mm-hmm. in his March letter, he does wonder whether or not he's mad to try and take Joy to Greece, given her mm-hmm. sick state. But he says that her heart is set on it. And he writes, mm-hmm. they give the condemned man what he likes for his last breakfast, I am told. 
when he mentions not being able to stay asleep and waking up in at the night in the night and he curiously says one wakes that he wakes every 70 minutes which is interesting he must have had a clock by his bed or something um i, I just want to recommend pastorally that when you wake in the night that's a good time to pray um and pray directly to god and to um to see if you can connect with god's love for you which is standing by your bed uh, he who watches over israel neither slumbers nor sleeps and so i always picture god kind of singing standing next to each of our beds making up little songs about us all night long um like a doting father uh watching over us um and so uh, but i also find wakeful times in the middle of the night good times for sermon prep um, so I think about a passage for the next sermon that I'm preaching, and I try to put those wakeful times, if I can't avoid them, to profitable use. There are also excellent times to pray for people. And so when I wake in the middle of the night and somebody comes to mind, maybe that's the Holy Spirit gently nudging me awake and praying for somebody who uh, who needs uh, a particular prayer at the moment. So um, let's make use of those times. If we can make a missed meal a fast, we can make uh, <laughs> a undesired wakefulness into times of devotional prayer. A vigil. A vigil, the, indeed. The, the monks wake in the middle of the night to pray for the world, so... Uh, may, 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 maybe this is the way of maybe this is the way God makes us all monks and nuns. <laughs> well, a vigilette, maybe. Let's hope it doesn't <laughs> last long, and may God give you all sleep. Yeah. Well, he's actually going to later have some advice as to how how to get back to sleep when you wake up in the middle of the night. So, we'll, we'll, but we'll deal with that when we get to it. Uh, also, in this uh, in this le letter from March, uh, he makes reference to a young man who's been very rude about Christianity. And funnily enough, he says that he has more hope for him than the, quote, many people in a quiet, cultured state of unbelief who would always speak of Christianity with reverence. And he explains mm. that this is because his very rudeness shows that he is not quite free from the fear that there might be something in it after all. Hmm. This idea, this, this reaction to Christianity and this speaking out against it actually reminds me of Jesus Shock by Dr. Peter Kreeft. Uh, and... In his fairly short book, he sort of makes the point that the name of Jesus just brings out reactions in people. Um, mm. And even if it's perhaps a negative reaction, uh, maybe God's going to be able to do some judo on that to uh, to spin it positive in the same way that he did with uh, Saul and the Apostle Paul, how, how he went from breathing murderous threats against Christians to becoming one mm. himself. One of the things I like best about Peter Kraft, who I saw once in Houston and have met at some Lewis events, um, uh, he came to give a talk about Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Screwtape Letters, and Mere Christianity. And the only books he had for sale on the table out of the dozens that he has written were Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Screwtape Letters, and Mere Christianity. He said, <laughs> my professional goal is to sell books by C.S. Lewis. So here, here to our <laughs> I love Peter Kreeft. Cheers. I love it. Cheers. Cheers. Well, they did get to Greece. In the letter the following month, he says they had a great time and that he's tried squid and octopus. And as someone who's tried both, <laughs> I can tell you they're nothing to write home about. Kind of chewy. <laughs> Depends on how they're prepared. But Lewis is very much a meat and potatoes kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's sort of like frog's legs and snails and all of those sorts of food. They can be nice, but the thing you're really enjoying is the sauce. Everything else around it but the sort of <laughs> actual centerpiece itself. Snails aren't that tasty, but the garlic sauce that they're, they're swimming in, delightful. Yes. 
You could just bottle that and put it in my uh, travel mug. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, it would it would it would keep people away from you because you know, you'd s- smell seriously of garlic, <laughs> but it'd be totally worth it. I don't need any artificial additives to create that circumstance. <laughs> His enthusiasm for their trip, uh, this ends up being contrasted with his letter, which is now three months later. Because in July, he writes that Joy died and died just Mm. two days before writing this letter. And he says, Mm. she received absolution and died at peace with God. And this is the quote of the week. I will try to write again when I have more command of myself. I'm like Mm. a sleepwalker at the moment. That was so beautiful. Well, and... And the very beginning of A Grief Observed um, describes uh, describes his state of mind. Um, he says, uh, no one ever tell, told me that grief felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like one being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. Yet I want others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. And um, that sentiment is part of what makes a grief observed um, so helpful and so continuously helpful. It's still a very popular book on grief. And so he really is walking through a, a bit of a stupor right now. Mm-hmm. Although um, he carried on with his work and one of his students reports that he came to a, a meeting or a tutorial or something. I know he wasn't giving tutorials um, at this point uh, with a black armband and the student sat down for his session. He said, oh, I see you're wearing a black armband. I hope nothing's happened. And he said, my, my wife died yesterday. Let's carry on. And so he was very dutiful about, uh, about what he did. I think it's the dutiful side that I'm so used to hearing. I mean, I know there's a grief observer up there. I haven't read it yet. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is, I guess, what I was stating earlier of how it's just so nice to see this other side of him, that it, it required an inner strength to be dutiful in the face of this. It wasn't just that he's a robot. He's not. Mm-hmm. But like Orwell, he does realize that uh, filling one's mind with busyness is a, is a way to escape sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just leaning Andrew, into this now. <laughs> Andrew, that's how you win this battle now this season is you never mention it again. And we now, because you've educated us so much on how everything is worked into it, we just naturally bring it up all the time like we do The Great Divorce. And it's like just victory. <laughs> you know, I'll take it out of those terms. I think that what I have successfully pointed out is that so many of Lewis's works are echoed into We Have Faces yes. and it's hard not to not to hear them. And so without making a fight or a claim, yes. um, I think one of its attractiveness is is because um, it remind so much of his other writing reminds us of what's going on until we have faces or vice versa. And you have successfully pointed that out, and admittedly, I see it now. <laughs> Lewis has successfully <laughs> written a great book. That's all. I, I've just happened to notice it, um, and and that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> well, it takes him a couple of months to have more command of himself. And in his next letter in September, 
Mary seems to be doing much better, more hopeful. She's in good spirits. And she asks Jack about his sorrow. And he describes it um, as, as like a winding road. It keeps changing mm-hmm. as it moves through the landscape. And he makes two observations about this mourning period. He first of all says that when you call out to God in, in, your, in your greatest need, it seems like that's the time when you don't get the help you need. Um, you seem to be shut off from the very thing that you need most. And he describes it as, don't knock and it shall be open to you. The, the, <laughs> it's, mm. it, it's, it's almost the opposite of what Jesus says in the Gospels. And he also says that in times when he feels closest to joy, those are the times when he mourns her least. Mm. What are your thoughts? Well, I think what he means by want is lacks, right? Um, want means to not have, right? And so the times where he feels closest to her, he wants her the least, meaning he feels her absence least um, to some degree. Yeah. And I think that's definitely true for people that I've known who have died. It's usually when I'm enjoying a memory of them. It, it is almost like they are present here and now. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I love what he says earlier on in the letter um, as to how I take sorrow. The answer is in nearly all the possible ways, because as you probably know, it isn't a state, but a process. And that was 70 years ago. And um, and I, I find it 60 years ago. And I find that that's still uh, a very insightful way to approach grief. Reminded me of Tuesdays with Maury. You guys have read that. He talks so much mm-hmm. about you need to go through emotion. He might make a little bit of a distinction of like, don't sit in it <laughs> forever. Uh, but you really do have to feel it fully, let it come, go through it, and then you can put it behind you. And so this kind of reminded me of it just with a little bit more nuance of the process of that. Mm. It's mm. also like the stages of grief that are often spoken about. And this is something I've, I've had firsthand experience of when I wasn't wanting to go through the anger stage. That's all. That's, that's where I stayed. It was only once I mm-hmm. allowed myself to feel angry that mm-hmm. the things then started moving forward. Mm-hmm. He says earlier in these letters about the flu um, that the uh, that the flu is um, the influenza is not a very severe illness, but it's a wonderful stayer. Um, mm-hmm. And grief oftentimes is yeah. Uh, his visits are not always very severe, but it is a wonderful stayer. Um, and I think that that's true, certainly, of my experience of grief, is that once I got over the initial, you know, real intensity of, of grief, you know, after a year or two, um, grief lingers and sometimes will just jump on you, um, surprise you. But I find that most often now at, a, at you know, a dozen years um, uh, from, from the huge grief that I went through, um, when I'm sad about something else, sometimes that sadness will intensify mm. and I'll find that the grief of that or the grief of the loss of my father will piggyback because I think that that pain stays inside of you and can't come flooding out or else we would just be completely undone and useless. But that grief until it's all the way work, worked out will remain, um, somebody once said, denial is a very helpful tool. And 
denial will stop when I'm ready to face the, the difficulty. And so sometimes the way that grief works with me anyway is that an unrelated sadness gets a little particularly intense and I'll check my reaction. Why am I crying about this? It's not so, it's not so hard. And then I'll realize almost immediately something will come to mind. Very often these days, it's my father. Um, and the grief will kind of piggyback. Oh, as long as there's some sadness getting out, let's work out. So let's, here's an extra bag that you can take with you. Yeah. While so, you're something going. else and to I drain. That's a, yeah. It's a gracious, I think, way of God to allow us to, to go through our pain. He also says in this letter that Warnie is away in Ireland, so I'm presuming suffering from alcoholism. Um, but he says that Douglas, Joy's youngest son, he, he describes him as the greatest comfort to me. Mm. Mm -hmm. I wonder what he did. Like I, I mm. wonder what explicitly he's referring to. Was Douglas just really good at being affectionate? Was just him being there? And it probably wasn't the being there because it would have been both sons then if that was the case. So there's something unique that he did. His older brother seemed to have been much more involved in his in his own world, and perhaps something of a pill. Um, and Doug seems to have been much more uh, uh, much more friendly. He loved Jack, um, and he was uh, he was helpful to him. He says, "My younger stepson has been an absolute brick." And David, tell us exactly what a brick means. How strong a compliment is that? Oh, it's, it's, it's the best. You're strong, you're reliable, solid as a rock. Okay, great. If I did a compliment to your wife, you are a brick. <laughs> you saying I'm fat? <laughs> <laughs> he says early on that Douglas is an absolute charmer. Uh, David, at first sight less engaging, is at any rate a comically appropriate stepson for me, being almost exactly what I was, bookworm, ped pedant, and a bit of a prig. And so he seems to have gotten on much better with Doug than he did with David. Hmm. Um, and David was reliable, and they loved each other. And um, Or I'm sorry, Doug was more reliable, I think. And they loved each other, I think. At this point, David was David had first explored Islam and was now exploring Judaism. But um, Doug, as far as I could tell, was a Christian, um, praying for his mother, and so they had, I think, more in common. And there seems to be a seems to have been a great affection between the two. Hmm. Well, after a more positive outlook in the previous letter, everything seems to have fallen apart again for Mary. I, I can't quite work out what's happened. I assume it's some incident with her family. But the, the key point for us is that Lewis speaks about struggling uh, between feelings of love and anger and about mm -hmm. our tendency to want to nurse our anger. And he advises her to focus on the line of the Our Father where we say, forgive us basically in the same measure that we forgive. <laughs> and he suggests that this can, this can help tame our wrath. Yeah, this is where I have a disagreement with Lewis. And by oh, the way, the okay. ellipses in the letters for these two years are uh, with her daughter, Lorraine. And I'm pretty sure that at the publication of, um, uh, yeah, I'm almost certain that when when Clyde Kilby published this in November of 67, certainly Lorraine would still have been alive. And so I think that he's right to remove her name. Um, uh, yeah, I don't quite agree with Lewis here. Um, he says, this fear that we will not be forgiven, right? I suppose all one can do is to keep on meditating on the petition, forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those that trespass against us. I find fear a great help, the fear that my own unforgiveness will exclude me from all the promises. Um, Fear tames wrath, and this fear, the fear of being not being forgiven because I have been unforgiving, uh, we have our Lord's word for it, is wholly well-grounded. Um, and he says elsewhere that our own forgiveness depends upon our forgiveness for others. Uh, and I don't think that he's theologically accurate here. I think that our forgiveness is a, a settled thing and a done deal. And I think that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those against us, I think that it's more aspirational than it is transactional. I would certainly hate listeners to go away thinking the only way God will forgive me is if I forgive my neighbor, because that's works righteousness. And that makes a mockery, I think, of grace. Um, I think that we should be very mindful of it and really carefully attending to forgiveness. Lewis writes about it in many places, including, um, including mere Christianity. And it's a very serious thing. And then I should like the parable of the debtor who's forgiven much and then uh, who won't forgive his neighbor. I think that we should very much attend to our own forgiveness. But I do not think that our salvation depends upon how forgiving I am. And here's where I would buy Jack a pint and prove him wrong. <laughs> well, I would also get a pint and I would be on Lewis's side on this one. Um, Ooh, you guys, let's go. Let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> it was well, me and Andrew the, more often than not. <laughs> well, it's in the Gospels. Jesus says, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. And that's pretty unequivocal. Now, I would offer sure. a few clarifications on this. This doesn't mean that our forgiveness is perfect. Um, but it does, he, he, he spells out in really the, the most severe terms that you can really spell out that unforgiveness has a consequence with our relationship with God. It does. But even to take your example, if I have never forgiven every, anyone anything, perhaps that would be the case. But if I have ever forgiven anyone their trespasses, then I don't fall into that camp. And I think that Lewis here is talking about action repeated becoming a habit and habit repeating becoming a virtue. And unless I have the virtue of being forgiving, and unless I look at always at the depth of forgiveness and the price that was paid for that forgiveness, um, I won't be worthy of heaven. I think that that's the, the case, but I can't make myself worthy of heaven. It is only God working in me that can produce not only forgiveness, but every other Christian virtue. Yes, I have to, like the Blessed Virgin in this season that we celebrate, I have to say yes. But my salvation does not depend on what I do, but what Christ did on the cross. And even at the end, he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And so I think that ultimately, while forgiveness is a really high virtue to, you know, to, uh, to hold to and to practice, and it's a troublesome thing in my own heart, and Lewis grappled with it, I don't know that my forgiveness of others is necessarily salvific, but we can theologize and drink beer about it uh, another time. Yeah, and, and this will be an interesting topic to bring back up when we talk about the last battle and the dwarves mm -hmm. and their ability mm -hmm. to effectively shoot themselves in the foot. Yes. Could we thread this needle too rather than answering this specific theological question? I just kept thinking of the great divorce and ontologically becoming. You know, if you want to go into 
to heaven, we have to become a certain being. Now, that pushes mm-hmm. a debate to like, how do we become that person? You know, where's grace and where's mm-hmm. our, our striving stuff? But like, yeah, you the type you won't be able to get into heaven if you don't have the capacity to forgive people. But you know, like that type of person will never be in heaven. Every single individual in heaven will have the perfect capacity to forgive. Now they didn't necessarily have it, you know, <laughs> during his life per se. But like, you know, that could that could be something more like that. Um, and that is mm-hmm. probably a true statement. I don't think we're going to walk around heaven and find people that only partially are able to forgive. Now, of course, that process of becoming is is driven by God's grace, His goodness, the cross, the incarnation, theosis. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's what I was thinking of as I heard you guys present your cases. Well, I think the the end game is is, is definitely like that. And Andrew alluded to the the parable of the unforgiving servant, and. The his punishment for not forgiving the debt of another is to be thrown in jail. And but there is a sign of hope in that, because the king says, "Don't let him out until he's paid every last penny." Basically, that implying that he can still get out of this, but mm. there is going to be a process he's going to go through. Mm. And of course, a parable has one main point, and the amount that he owed was something like two hundred and sixty-five billion dollars. Yeah. And for a servant to owe that, I mean, I'm like, a, what kind of idiot financial manager did the master have that he would lend his slave that much money? Um, but the main point is that in light of how much we have forgiven, we should also forgive. Mm-hmm. And Matt, I think that you're wise to bring up the great divorce. Oh, Hear me you. saying that, thank please, you, you. for the record. <laughs> Can we just pause um, here for a second, everyone? Let me just take this in. It's not every it's day not I that get unusual. a compliment like this. I love this. It's not every day you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> we should get a great blooper reel. Someone should go through and listen to a great blooper reel. This would actually be really funny. But I think that remember that the the woman who grumbled had become a grumble, Mm. right? And so I don't think that if I have any unforgiveness in my heart, I'm in danger of losing my salvation. I think that if I pursue unforgiveness to the point that I become unforgiving, then I also become unforgivable, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And you see this elsewhere in Lewis uh, as well. And so- if I'm on my path like the dwarfs um, to, to, to being able to see, not be able to see outside myself whatsoever, um, that's, I'm on that distant, uh, on that definite journey. But I think also in the great divorce, that's what really kind of opened my eyes to the forgiveness of God. Um, in the great divorce, you see God going to every measure to turn somebody around. And even the, I've been thinking very much about the thief on the cross. And he had lived a completely unrighteous life or a mostly unrighteous life until the very end. If one moment of forgiving somebody starts to turn my heart in the right direction at the end of my life, I think Mm -hmm. that that is more than enough for God because it's his grace that does it in us. And if we will only soften our hearts and open our ears and turn our lives, the direction of our lives to the point that we can hear him and say yes, he is pleased with their stumbles if their intention is to walk. Mm. I can say amen to that. And I did just want to end by saying one of other, one of Lewis's other suggestions was that it's helpful to think that either X, this person, either X is not so bad as in my present anger, I think. Mm-hmm. If not, how unjust I'm, I must be. If so, how terrible X needs my prayers. 
And I'll, I'll throw mm. your bone for all of the great divorce references because uh, this reminded me of Till We Have Faces because uh, it's kind of like the line where Psyche says, would you like to be Redival? What? No? Then she's pitiable. And we must ask ourselves, even in our most offended, what troubled that person that they could do that mm. to me? We have a terrible highway here in Florida. I-4 is is uh, just a maniac lane uh, cutting across the state. Um, and so I've been encouraging my folks in men's Bible study and my Lewis class to give yourself an extra half an hour on I-4 and just let people in before they can cut you off and ask yourself what kind of unpleasantness must they be embodying that they would drive so rudely and you know make it almost an ascetic act. Um, even driving can become spiritual discipline. Uh, so I think anger comes to the fore a lot when we're driving and forgiveness is a great thing to practice when you're around rude drivers, especially during rush hour. That's why we're so much more spiritual here in Wisconsin. We have much better traffic. <laughs> Yeah, but your hunters shoot cows during deer season. <laughs> hey, they can look very similar in the mist. All right, <laughs> 1960 now comes to a close with a letter in November with some rather funny musings about forgetfulness and old age. So I'm going to be handing over to Andrew very soon on this one. Uh, uh, Lewis suggests that everyone forgets that. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I didn't have my hearing aids loud <laughs> oh, enough. <laughs> but if I could have, I would have taken a tennis ball off my walker and thrown it at you. <laughs> anyway, Lewis, Lewis suggests that everybody forgets stuff. It's just that when old people do it, we talk about, oh, they're old, they're in decline. Hmm. He says, why? It was years ago that on finishing my work before lunch, I stopped myself only just in time from putting my cigarette end in my spectacle case and throwing my spectacles into the fire. And I will say that I've done something very similar. And I'll just tell you that I had some uh, some uh, dirty clothes that, I, that were meant to go into the laundry basket and a used Kleenex that was going to be thrown into the lavatory. And those two things did not end up where they should have. <laughs> and there's so oh, much truth no. to this. I mean, the amount of times I've done crazy things like thrown away an electronic, thinking I was throwing away a wrapper. <laughs> Or put something in a refrigerator <laughs> mindlessly in the morning that was supposed to be my yeah, backpack. Yeah. Like I've <laughs> yeah. done these things and and my grandmother, every time she does something similar, she's like, I'm getting Alzheimer's, I'm getting Alzheimer's. I'm like, I don't think that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, none of us have perfect memories. None of us are perfectly attentive, especially in our distracted age. And it's all gonna get worse until we die and go to heaven. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. In this letter, I also wanted to note that Jack pushes against the rule that one should not end a sentence with a preposition. He claims it was invented I'm by- I'm sorry, the, that, that, a, that a preposition is something that you shouldn't end a sentence with. with thank you. <laughs> uh, he claims that this was invented by the English poet and literary critic John Dryden. And he thinks that he liked this rule because you couldn't actually even do this in more polite languages, such as Latin. Uh, but lastly, it seems that the subject of Mary going to a retirement home has come up. And I think this is quite a nice way to end the episode because Lewis says mm. that whether that happens, whether her experience is good or bad, he writes that Christ will be there just as much as in any other place. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, that's going to be a sentence um, helpful for me, just even in my own work. Um yeah, I've absolutely. made Kristen promise not to send you to a home just yet. <laughs> yeah, well, good thing about getting old. I'll forget that soon enough. Incidentally, when Lewis talks about being old, he's 61, for God's sakes. How old are you, Andrew? <laughs> so, 
Uh, I'll be 58 on no, on December 29th. Not bad. So um, I've heard back from Reggie Weems, who's an expert on Lizzie Endicott, Lewis's Irish nurse. And Lizzie died four years and uh, four years and three days after Lewis did. So she died in 67. So it is Janie McNeil that they were talking about. But yes, um, see, I remembered that even though I'm old. <laughs> 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 well, uh, Matt, do you have anything else that you would like to say in closing? No, just listeners. I can't wait until next week's letter. I think you guys are going to like it. There's some really beautiful, as you can imagine, a ton is happening as they're nearing death. And Lewis just has some really beautiful dispositions on it. I also love in this, in this series of letters, how often he defines and describes things like it's a mixture or alternation of resentment and affection that is so very uneasy, isn't it? And he's talking about, um, you know, people that we love, um, for the indulgence of either meaning resentment or affection, uh, immediately comes up to slap against the other, which then a few seconds later comes to slap up against it. And so the mind uh, does a diabolical, diabolical sh shuttle service to and fro between them. So uh, affection and resentment, and it's Christmas. And I imagine that some of our listeners are probably in family situations where everything isn't altogether perfect. Um, <laughs> and so just to be mindful of the fact that I'm feeling affection and irritation going back and forth is, is, uh, is very helpful, I think. And Lewis also closes this last letter by saying, and she's talking about her irritation with, with her daughter. She says, slowing, Lewis says, slowing down the speed of the conversation with this troublesome person, so far as depends on oneself, is sometimes helpful. Also, sitting down. I think we all talk more excitedly when standing. Notice how often actors in a comedy sit, whereas those in a tragedy usually stand. And what a helpful bit of advice. If I'm having a high-throated conversation, invite somebody to sit down and slow down the conversation. Um, again and again, I think I find Lewis so you know eternally helpful. And so I'm really enjoying this season. Well, next episode, we are going to be wrapping up Letters to an American Lady. And please stick around for after the sign-off, because I'm going to be reading one of Mary Willis Shelburne's poems. But I hear the call for final drinks. So thanks to our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah. Thanks to our intern, Julia, for producing the show notes and the chapter markings in YouTube and on the MP3 that you're currently listening to. Thanks to our listeners and Patreon supporters, particularly our top-tier supporters, Alex, James, Matt, Erica, Joel, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for our <laughs> listeners and all of our prayer requests on our Slack channel every Tuesday. If you've enjoyed this episode, please order a friend a copy of Letters to an American Lady, and it'll probably arrive before the new year. And please join us again next time. When we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. 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 Open Your Hearts by Mary Willis Shelburne The night was dark and still, high burned the stars, jewels in the skies, above the village and the sprawling hill, where shepherds watched and heard each lamb's soft cry. Within the stable, lonely, chill and dim, where stood the cattle watching wonderingly, and saw God give his gift to us, Saw him, the uttered word, a newborn baby, lovingly held to his mother's heart, heard his first wail in the cold world that through him had been made.
Joseph was on his knees, as if a grail was lifted up before him. Mary laid her son, the Son of God, on his first throne, a manger soft with hay, and then they came, the shepherds who obeyed and sought the one the angel told them of. This is the aim of all men of all time, not in great places, nor kingly majesty, no palace did he choose. Seek him in humble ways, accept his loving graces, open all eyes and ears and hearts to his good news.